Hello, good morning. Today's teaching text comes from Mark 4, 35 through 41. That day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This is the word of the Lord. For those of you who don't know, I'm Patrick Boatwright. I'm a pastor of student and families here. Uh, and it is always just a joy of my life to be able to open the word of the Lord before us. I know it is beautiful outside. I know there are so many things you could be doing, and yet we're here, and I'm excited to be here. I hope you are too. And I, you know, we've been going through this series all summer on faithfulness and the faithfulness of God and how it relates to us. And uh, I have to just say, man, I'm really excited about this word today, uh, not because it's any fancy thoughts that I've come up with, um, but because I truly feel um, that it's, it's been a word from the Lord, and it came early, and I've been able to sit on it and savor it for a couple months now, and so uh, I'm ready to see what he's going to do. So with that, let's pray, and we're just going to dive in. Lord, we are here because we want to know more of who you are and how you work. Um, actually, Lord, some of us are here, I think, I guess, honestly, some of us are here because we want to see who you are. Uh, some of us are here because it's Sunday and that's just what we do. And some of us are here, honestly, because we don't even know why we're here, um, but we've made our way. And so, Lord, I pray that in your good faithfulness, no matter why the reason we are here today, I pray that through these words uh, that you give me, we would be able to see you clearer. We use a lot of phrases around here about hearing from you and seeing from you and talking to you. And uh, some of us know that intimately and others of us are struggling with that language. And so I just pray today um, that maybe it'll make a little more sense and maybe you will just part the fog of life and help us to understand what it means to have a God, to know a God, and to be loved by him. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so diving right in, uh, like I said, we've been going through this, this series on faithfulness, and this short passage in Scripture came to me. And it's short, but I think that as we unpack it, we'll see that it can be very instructive for understanding what exactly it means when we talk about the faithfulness of God, him being faithful to us, him sustaining us, him being worthy of our trust and our faith. And before we jump into the passage, I just want to set it up just a little bit so we're all on the same page about what's happening here, right? So Mark is writing this gospel. Mark's more of a, he's a transcriber. He's just kind of giving us the facts. This is what it is. But he's really also, you'll see in a little bit, uh, enamored with the works of Jesus. And right before we jump into four, right becomes before that is this kind of 
world that we're in, first century Judea, right? And so we have Jesus, who's a rabbi. If you know anything about the rabbinical system, essentially this time you had disciples, you had these, these followers, right? So you went through this rabbinical system, you've been studying the Torah, you've been committing it to memory, and now you're following a teacher of the Torah who's going to uh, take you under his wing and teach you how to follow the Torah and how to uh, interpret the Torah. And so these disciples follow a teacher, and you kind of picked a teacher that you found worthy of following and who accepted you, uh, and then you would be in his commission, right? And so Jesus is in this line of system, and Jesus is a relatively obscure guy. He's born in a little town called Bethlehem. Uh, he's from a little place called Galilee. That's essentially, I would say, probably more like Staten Island than Manhattan, uh, he's just kind of a backwoods guy. Like when he comes on the scene, people are like, isn't that Jesus from Galilee? What does he got to say, right? And so Jesus is coming. He's starting his ministry. He's been baptized. And we see at this point, Jesus has done a few signs. He's like killed a man with a withered hand. He's turned water into wine. And so these people have heard of a person who can do miraculous and wondrous things, which apparently in first century in antiquity wasn't a very abnormal thing, right? And some of that we can chalk up to pre-enlightenment. We don't know the full effects of science and what can happen. And so, you know, we don't know that like, oh, this is just um, some scientific reaction, some chemical reaction that's happening. It just looks like magic, right? So we can chalk up some of that to that. And so whatever it is, the people of the first century are not particularly enamored by certain tricks, but this guy is doing things that they've never quite seen, and he's kind of weird, and so he's built a crowd because he's kind of this odd duck. And there's a large crowd we see in like Mark 2, Mark 3. And out of all these people, Jesus comes into a mountain and he calls 12. And he's like, out of all these people, you 12 are going to be like my centered set. That's TGC language. I don't know if Jesus started that, but we use it today. Uh, and so the center set of 12, Jesus takes him and says, I'm really going to download everything that I have. Into you, And so they follow him intimately and closely. And they've seen all these signs and wonders that he's done. And they've heard these teachings and these parables, right? And this guy, they're still just trying to figure him out. There's this story at the end of uh, Mark 3 where Jesus' family, all right, we oftentimes, I don't know about you, but I kind of sometimes think of Jesus as the only child, right? He was the first child. He wasn't the only child. He has plenty of brothers and sisters. And the scriptures say that at one point, Jesus is getting all this buzz, and his family is like, we know you. Like, what are you talking about? You're my brother. And they come out to find Jesus because they're trying to figure out what all this hoopla is about. And the people tell Jesus, like, hey, your brother and sister and your mother are here. And Jesus replies, my brothers and my sister and my mothers are those who hear my words and do them. And people are like, What? What is this guy talking about? And so people are really confused by him, but he has the ability to feed a large crowd. And so people come. I don't not blame them, right? And so when we come into Mark 4, this is just after Jesus has finished ministering to this large crowd, and now he's pulling away with the center set, and we're getting on this boat, and Jesus crossing this water, and we're going to pick up there and see what the what scriptures have to tell us. So going back to the teaching text, starting in the beginning, verse 35, scriptures say that the day when evening came, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was. Again, that's smart, just kind of like, dude, he had nothing on him, so 
just know he, what happens next, he didn't have anything with him to cause it. They, pick him, they take him on just as he was in the boat, and there were also other boats with him, and a furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. As someone, side note, uh, I think I've told this story before, who has been underneath a boat who cannot swim, holding onto a boom without a life jacket, I know how scared they were, okay? Trust me when I say they are quite scared. <laughs> because when you're out there in the water and you feel helpless, it is not a good look because there's no dry land around. And so this squall comes up in verse 38. It says this, Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. And the disciples woke him and said to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? And this, I think, is how we know that the Bible is a true account of these people's and their interactions. Because if I was trying to sell you the story of this false prophet, I would try to make him look good, right? Like, I'm in this boat, I'm his follower, there was a big storm, and he was just, like, doing everything he could, like, to pull the ropes, to balance this out. But no, the Bible doesn't say that. Jesus is on a cushion, and his followers are like, do you, you don't care if we drown? Like, we're about to die here. Could you maybe get up, get a bucket, something? And they are fearful. And it's a weird situation because imagine you just saw a man who turned a guy's withered hand into a full hand by, like, sticking it in his, like, coat. And so, like, you know that he's got some sort of power or some sort of pull with something, right? And now here you are in this storm, and you're feeling helpless, and you're feeling scared. And it's amazing that it says, like, this is a, this is a story. This is a real storm because these guys are professional fishermen. They live on the water, right? And so unlike me who cannot swim and should not be on boats without life jackets, children, please take note of that. Uh, they were professionals, and so to see them so scared to be at the point of fear of death, we know that the storm was pretty intense. Yet Jesus manages to sleep. And frankly, disciples just don't get it. And I think this is the first aspect of God's faithfulness we encounter and our, and our relationship to it, right? Because I think we can relate to the disciples in this point. Oftentimes when we look at God's faithfulness, it's so easy to judge it by our circumstances in life. Like it's so easy to correlate God's faithfulness and the troubles that we have in our life, right? So if God's at work in my life, if God's being faithful to me, I don't have any troubles. If all of a sudden I lose my job three weeks before my baby's supposed to come, God, why have you forsaken me? How could you be a faithful God if I'm experiencing such trouble? But I don't think that that's a proper correlation. I don't think that the scriptures actually show us that's how God's faithfulness works. There's uh, this passage, it's very small, uh, I've been kind of reading through the Bible, and bless you, and uh, I was in Exodus, and there was just this small passage that caught my eye, and when I read it, I was like, well, that is so weird, but I think it just, it totally shifted, honestly, kind of the way I thought about things and saw the world. I'm going to put it up here. It's Exodus 23, 28. 
Some frame of reference, God is taking his people that he has committed to in covenant relationship that he's going to make larger than the sands uh, on the, all the beaches, no, larger than the stars in the sky. He makes him this promise that he has a land for them, and he's going to take them to this land. And so they're about to embark on this journey with this God, and he says this. He says, I will send the hornets ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and the Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land will become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. I'm going to read that one more time. And just, again, think of this, a faithful God, this all-powerful God. And this is what he says to these people according to the promises he's sending them out for. I will send out the hornet ahead of you to drive the Hivites, Canaanites, and Hittites out of your way. But I will not drive them out in a single year because the land would become desolate and the wild animals too numerous for you. And I read that and I was like, Okay, let me get this straight. So all-powerful God can send magic bees to drive out a land and clear it, and yet that land doesn't stay clear? He says, I'm not going to send in the bees too early because if I do it more than a year, the animals are just going to come in and take over the place, and you can't have it. What? You cleared it. Keep it clear. That's like mom 101. If you clean it, like, let's just keep it clean. It's way easier. And I sat on that, and I just read that, and I was like, that is so strange. And as I prayed about it, the Spirit revealed this to me, and it really did fundamentally change the way I view the world. And it's that this, yes, God has the capacity to intervene into the world that he's built. He shows that. He can take bees and drive out people. And yet God also has the restraint to let the world that he has made run its course. Yes, he can intervene. He is absolutely a supernatural God. But first and foremost, he's a natural God. And he built a world and he called it good. And then we find out that that world was corrupted. And so some people may ask, like, okay, why did we have to, like, go through this whole rigmarole for you to bring us back to the garden why couldn't you, like, Adam and Eve screw up, okay, and enter Jesus, okay, Q cross, okay, and we're back, right? Why do we have to go through all these thousands and thousands of years of pain and suffering in this world? And the best I can realize is this, and I think this is true of the God that I see in Scripture. Unlike us, God is not impatient. In fact, God is patient. He grows things like a gardener, Right? I mean, this is Park Slope, Williamsburg, 2019. We all love, like, fresh, no HMOs, GMOs, PPOs. You know, like, we don't want anything in our chicken. We just want the pure, just, like, stick it on a plot of grass, let it eat there, um, and then we'll talk about maybe we should kill it. I realized I was, yeah. <laughs> I tried to get out, but we were there. <laughs> They would overtake us, Tim, honestly. <laughs> uh, and so God doesn't just suit things up with steroids. He doesn't just snap his fingers and he's like, here's the magic, let me fix things. No, he said, my world that I call perfect has gone into disarray and I'm going to grow it through love out of its disarray back into its beauty, back into its tov meod, its goodness, its wholeness. 
So God is patient and he grows things. And so what does this mean? Why is this fundamental? For me, this fundamentally shifts how I see the world. Because if I see the world primarily as a good world, a perfect world, a, a world that's right, in which bad things happen to it, right? When things happen in this world, then God has fell asleep. Where is he? If all you got to do is maintain this good world and you're so powerful, how do you let these bad, terrible things like cancer and children dying and starvation and racism, the Holocaust, how do you let these things happen if all you got to do is maintain a good world? But if conversely this world was once good but is now broken, right? Scientists call it entropy that this world tends from order to chaos. The whole world is breaking down. If this world is breaking down and its status quo is that people die early, that I lose my job, that no one wants to be my friend, that I feel alone constantly, if that's the, the stasis and the fact that the sun comes up every morning and seven billion people manage to breathe every day and somehow there are bright spots in my day, then the question becomes not is he sleeping on the job, but how does he manage it all? How does he make it all happen? How does so much good happen in a world that's so utterly broken and tending towards chaos? It really shifts things for me and my understanding of God and his faithfulness. So maybe his faithfulness is found in the mundane. Maybe God's faithfulness is the fact that it doesn't snow 12 months a year. Amen? Here's the point. God's faithfulness is both distinct from our troubles and intimately related to them. Say it again. God's faithfulness is both distinct from our troubles and intimately related to them. What do I mean by that? God's faithfulness isn't causing our brokenness, isn't causing our troubles to teach us some cosmic moral lesson. God doesn't allow bad things to happen to us because he wants to, like, toughen us up. No, bad things happen to us because we live in a world where bad things happen. And God's faithfulness is that he's there in it. And so we don't have to go through these bad things, these hard things, these trying times alone. And then yet, even in that, sometimes he just breaks the rules and he does something supernatural and unexplainable to just show us and to remind us that, hey, I still got the power. I'm still here. I'm still worthy to be trusted. So that's the kingdom of God breaking through. Romans 8 says this, 828, it says that God is working all things for the good of those who love him. He's working all things for the good. He's not causing all things. He's not like manipulating all things, but he's taking what's happening and he's like, okay, this is bad. You're in this bad world, but I am turning it around into your ultimate good. I will not let you suffer for long. First Peter 5 tells us that we suffer for a little while in due time. He's faithful and just to restore, establish, strengthen, confirm us. That's the God we serve. But our disciples did not understand this yet. This was, they were still just getting started, like I said. 
So they're on this boat, storm's coming, we're about to die, I'm terrified, he's asleep. Are you going to let us drown? Do you even care? How many times have you asked that question? And here's what happens. Verse 39, it says this, that Jesus, he got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Uh, I have a dear friend, and uh, she talks often of how um, one of the hardest things for her walk in life has been how she has heard the voice of God, or how she, when she reads scriptures, how she, she interprets the way in which Jesus is talking to her. And so for her, like reading this passage, she hears, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? That's a shaming rebuke. What's wrong with you? What is your issue? Why are you so dumb? And so I don't blame her that for her it's been really hard to develop a faith with a God like that because honestly, I will say, if that's the God we're called to serve and give our devotion to, I don't think that's a God we're serving. If he meets our fear with shame and rebuke, guilt, that you screwed up again. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I say that for a few reasons. In every aspect of what comes next, when Jesus talks to them, the disciples don't actually respond in shame or guilt. He doesn't heap shame or guilt upon them. We're going to talk about their reaction in a minute, but I think it's important that we see that I think what Jesus is doing here, what's happening here is two things. First, this. look at the first action that Jesus takes. He awakes from his slumber. He gets up. He sees the storm. And immediately he leans out and he goes, quiet, be still. He breaks those rules of that natural world, right? He shows that he's still got some juice, right? He says, be still, and the wind obeys him. The storm sighs down, and all of a sudden, this water that had professional fishermen shaking in their boots, afraid of death, is now calm. So what I see in that moment, first of all, is not a shaming God, right, but an intimate God. Because what Jesus does is he comes into their pain. See, Jesus is asleep on the boat because he knows the end of the story. He knows, as John said, that everything that's been, that is, was created in and through him. So he's got control of over all of this. He is both God and man. So he knew the story. He knew they weren't going to die on this boat. And yet he calms the storm because they're freaking out and they're scared. He enters their pain. And he acts on their behalf. So he relates to our pain. That's the God we serve. We can come to him. We don't understand. And he doesn't dismiss us with shame. The second part of that is his response to them. Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? And here's the question. This isn't shaming what Jesus is asking them is he's reminding them, he's saying, Have I not, did I not show you enough? And I think it's genuine curiosity and a reminder to them, think back. Think back to that withered hand. 
Think back to those buckets of food we fed all those people. Think back to that water and the wine. You've seen that I can control things. Do you think I'd really let you suffer? I'm not going to let you suffer. And so he's growing them in this moment. In this moment, he calms the storm and he says, hey, I want you to grow from this. Don't just let this be the time that you were scared and then I like stopped it, but I want this to be another marker in your relationship with me that shows you that I'm worthy of trust. You don't have to be scared. Have faith in me. See, our troubles reveal the scope of God's faithfulness. One, He's resolute to our growth, right? So he allows this world to go through all the things it's gone through since that faithful, faithful garden day. And he's still working and making things good. So he's letting us grow. He's growing in his renewal. And yet also he relates to our pain. So he stands outside of it, but then he enters it to do his work. And some of you may find this hard, because you understand the first part, the, the God that, like, is all about your growth. But you don't know and you haven't seen this, like, big God become intimate. And so you're saying, okay, yeah, I don't get that last part because I'm going through some stuff and where is God? And can I say this? Brothers and sisters, maybe we got to turn around or look to our left and our right. Because here's the thing. If we only see God as some super being passing down uh, rules of thought and right ways to live, then it is incomplete for the experience that we see and observe and go through in this world. And so we don't just serve a God that thunders from Mount Zion, but we also serve a God who has given us his spirit and he's called his people to live out his work. And so if we're looking for God, the relational God, well, he has placed it in us. And so we have that responsibility to love one another, to care for one another, become the hands and feet of Jesus, right? So yesterday when all those backpacks were stuffed, that was God at work. When our friends were like on the brink of divorce and we're sitting there and we can't fix it, we, we just can't do anything, but we can sit there and we can cry and we can let them just scream from their bones. That's Jesus standing next to us. Peter Rollins, a theologian, he puts it this way. He describes this aspect of God as uh, the ground of being, that from which everything grows, right? And so in these interactions, God is not contained in some kind of like just this object, but God permeates and is, is this thing that is uncontainable. It's this, it's this feeling like love, right? What is love? Show me love. Well, you can't get love off of any shelf, but you can show it to me and understand it by the way that you care for me, by the way for you're there in my pain, the way you celebrate and my joys. In there is love. But how do you hold that? And so I would say if the, full experience, if, if the full experience of you relating to God is found here in these seats on a Sunday morning, then I will go ahead and save you the time and say you should just go on to brunch because you're not going to find the fullness of God for what you need in this world. 
here. This is only one aspect. This is the place where we ration together and we pull down thoughts and we break down this word and we try to understand a little bit more about this mysterious God. But the day-to-day, the real nitty-gritty of the God that we serve, the God that wants to get to know you, is found in our relationships. It's found in how we relate to one another. It's found when we can lay down our prejudices, when we can lay down our differences, and we can seek the good of someone else at our own expense. Right, And so here we have these life groups, and this is, I just want to say, honestly, if you're a part of this body, and you're not a part of a community, a smaller community, where you guys can break bread together, love each other, share when you need some help with your bills, talk about your search for a house, talk about your disappointment in not having love, or having love, like, you're missing out, and I, I just can't stress that enough. We have resources. You can find them in the back. You can go on the website. There's a group link. You can find me or any of our leaders. But I beg you, if you have not understood what it's meant to be in covenant relationship with someone, then you can't know the fullness of God. And you don't need to be married for that. It isn't dependent upon that. All you need is someone who's willing to lay down their selves for you, and you do the same back. And so maybe you're saying, I need a friend. No one's been my friend. And maybe the person next to you is like, I need a friend. And so sometimes, and here's the cool thing, last thing I'll say about this. We find God in the interaction. And so maybe if we need a friend, we can go be a friend. And when we go be a friend, we'll find someone who is a friend to us. And so if someone hasn't come and made you feel loved and wanted in this community, I'm sorry. I, I wish... I could do that for each and every one of you, and all of our pastors do too, and we just can't. It's just the truth. But there's so many people in here. If we can just reach out and be a friend to someone and make sure that every person that walks through that door knows that they're loved, I'm going to make that my mission. Well, as I'm loving them, well, I'm going to create people who love me too. And there becomes this crazy interaction and this crazy movement, and that is the Spirit of God rising up. And that's how we find a God who is both above and beyond, but also close and intimate and who knows our name. Because he does it through his people. Uh, My wife and I adopted a baby boy a few months ago. Um, Sweet baby James. He is awesome. And I can say, because I know part of making him incredibly beautiful, uh, he really is a good-looking kid, and uh, I really love him. And I don't know if you guys have realized this, but in this country, literally, in this time and space, 2019, I literally just saw an article the other day of a man uh, sleeping in his car as it drove. Cars can drive themselves, and yet to drive a car, you have to meet a minimum age requirement, take a written test and an in-person test, and then we place people to roam around to make sure that you know how to drive a car and that you're driving it correctly, and yet they will give you a human life if you have a working car seat. <laughs> they don't even check to see what kind of car you have. Like, they just let you out of a hospital. And so they gave us this child, and I was like, Okay, I mean, I wanted this, but okay, we'll see how this goes. Uh, so we get them home, and they're just basically like, here's two diapers and some formula, keep them alive. Uh, <laughs> and so we're just in this thing, and we're trying to figure it out. And so we like, you know, get all the books, and someone gave us this book, which next to the Bible uh, is the second one I would recommend. Um, 
Mom on Call. Anybody? Anybody? You know this book? So it just takes you, it just tells you all the things. And it's just like, here, if they're making this noise, it's fine. If they're like doing it for too long, call the cops. Uh, <laughs> and so I'm like, okay, this is really great. And so we like started using this book and me and my wife were figuring it out and it talks about how to like train your kid. And I'm like, okay, I like this. And they like, because like the first few weeks, I just sleep deprivation. Honestly, it's like sleep terrorism. Uh, and, and you're just like, you're just in it and you, uh, you can't think or function and you have weird twitches. Um, and so you're just trying to make it through. And so we got this book, but then they tell you like, okay, it's time, you do this little schedule. And next thing you know, you get like four hours of sleep a night. And I, I, I can't explain to you, I would trade my kingdom like for four hours, everything I own for four hours of sleep. It was incredible. It was, so they had me. They honestly could have told me anything in that book. Like, hey, listen, you gotta send us all your money and your bank account. I'm like, here it goes. Just tell me what to do next, okay? So we get to this part of the book where it talks about, hey, there's these signs, there's this time where you have to start what's called sleep training, okay? And sleep training, uh, the promise of sleep training for the uninitiated is that your child has the capacity to sleep for 12 hours, in a row. In. Amen. Hallelujah. Let's go. What do I do? Right? So they show you, all right, here you go. But now the first part of sleep training is this. You can't just jump into sleep training. So if you like just got a recent kid and you're like, this kid was just born. Can we start this? No. You, you have to wait a little bit. Uh, so the first part of sleep training is that you actually have to show your faithfulness to this child. And so that means when it cries, when they cry, when he or she cries, you have to go, and you can't just wait too long. You got to make sure they have their bottle, and you start to put them on a schedule, and you start to lay them down, and you pick them up, and you give them their passy, and in the middle of the night, when you really want to sleep, you still got to go in there, and you just show them, like, hey, this is your schedule. This is the world, and I'm here, your wonderful tour guide, and I'll be here if you need anything, okay? And then you just kind of like, okay, all right, what is that? Okay, you need another passy? There you go. All right, and so you have to do this for a while until they kind of get big enough, right? But then there's these certain milestones where they're healthy, your doctor has said it's okay, uh, and, uh, and they can say, all right, well, now it's time to sleep train. And the first night that you do it, there's a couple of different methods, but this method is called cry it out. Some of you right now are drafting that email to me, uh, <laughs> and that's fine. You can send it, and I will read it with all love and grace, uh, due in part to the fact that I sleep all night, okay? So, <laughs> so, so for those of you who don't know, cry it out means you take them, they're healthy, you've shown your faithfulness, and then one night, you put them in their room, and all the things that they liked, like that little swaddle that they've now been keep getting out of, that passy that they love to suck on, right? You who comes in every time they cry, well, all that just goes. They're done. It's like cold turkey. All right, give me your cigs. You're out of this thing. All right. And they go, and then so that first night, they lose it. And your job is to keep the door closed. Don't go in the room. Let them cry. They're not going to leave. They don't know how to use their legs. <laughs> they got enough weight, they're not going to die. Just let them cry. And so uh, a few weeks ago, my wife and I, this one night, uh, the time hits us, 
and he's been getting out of his thing. And so he's out of his, his uh, swaddle and his needs is passing. And I go, what do I do? So I go to the Bible. I go to the book. Uh, okay. And they say, time to sleep train. I'm like, all right, dude, you're done. So I walked in, boom, boom, boom. Naked. He's just like out. He's just out here. He's got nothing. He's in his crib. And I'm like, honey, we're sleep training. We're in this. <laughs> and she's like, what? I'm like, don't, don't ask questions. We're doing it. He's going to sleep tonight. And she's like, I can't do it. I'm like, we got to do it. And so we close the door, turn up the sound machine, and you can imagine what happened next. He loses his ever-loving mind. He goes crazy, and he's crying. And I get it. Because up until this point in his life, every time he has needed something, I've been there, and I've never let him cry too long. And I've proved myself so faithful to him. And he's grown these little comforts. And then all of a sudden... Out of nowhere, because trouble doesn't announce itself, he's vulnerable. He doesn't have his passing. He isn't bundled up all nice and tight like a little butterbean. He's alone, and he's in this crib, and no one's coming when he cries. And it's dark, and it's loud, because the sound machine is just going and I can understand why he's terrified. And I can understand why he doesn't understand that I'm not coming. And I imagine if he could talk, he would have said something similar to, don't you care that I'm drowning? Don't you care that I'm scared? Don't you care that I'm in trouble? But this is what I know. We live in a world where at some point I'm going to die. And hopefully he will still be alive. And I will not be able to go put that passy in his mouth. And I will not be able to tighten him up in a blanket when it's time to sleep. And so for that day to come in this world, he's got to learn to soothe, to say it's okay going to be fine. I got this. But he doesn't understand that yet. Because all he knows is the crib. So he's freaking out. But I have to be patient. That's the whole point of the book. You got to be patient. You got to trust. You got to let it grow. You've shown your faithfulness and you're being faithful, even though to him it doesn't feel like it. I have to be patient and let him grow. And it's very hard. So in this room, our room was separated kind of by these French doors. And we're in the bed. And again, like I said, I totally just sprung this on my wife. That is actually against the book's recommendations. Uh, <laughs> now I know why. Uh, so he's crying. It's 3 in the morning. And we're like wide awake. My wife is so angry. She's so angry. And I see and I imagine, this is a crude example because God is so much bigger than we are, but in that moment, I just saw the two hearts of God. Because I sat there, the Father I was resolute. I was like, listen, it's hard. I don't like hearing him cry, but I know that there's future glory coming. I know that he's going to be stronger because of this. I have to be patient and we have to let him grow. And my wife is in tears 
please just let me go in there and just snap my fingers. Please just let me just end it for him. I have the power to just wipe out all his needs. And I imagine that in God we see this internal struggle. That he's patient and he's growing things. And yet he's resolute. He's resolute in our growth and yet he's there relational, crying with us. Feeling our pain in all the ways we do. Here's the last part of sleep training, and I think the most important as we wrap up. The last part of sleep training and the most important part of sleep training is that after that night and every day thereafter, as much as humanly possible, at 7 a.m., you open that door and you grab your baby and you feed them and you love them. And what that teaches them is it expands their idea of the faithfulness. Because it shows them, I know the night seems long, but in the morning, I will be there. And I will be there to meet your needs. Every day, I'm going to be there. And so his idea of my faithfulness expands and it allows him to grow and become healthy. And he knows every morning. And so what happens, and for us, it was only one night. This is supposed to be three. But this is true. One night, we went through it. It was terrible. And every night since, he sleeps 12 hours, hallelujah, amen, let's go home. God is good, people, all the time, God is good. It worked. He sleeps, I sleep. You're not listening to gibberish right now. But I have to be faithful to him. And he just doesn't understand it. As the band comes up, I just want to look at this last verse. Verse 41, they were terrified, the disciples, and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. If we're honest, a lot of times we probably feel like my son in the middle of the night. We're going through troubles that we didn't see coming, we didn't ask for, and we don't know how to get out of. Oh. There's a God who's been faithful in the past, but man, it's hard. And then you see his faithfulness. You see that the morning comes. And that leads us to this question, who is this man? That's why I say these disciples, I don't think they were ashamed or guilt, and they didn't sense that in Jesus because they didn't recoil. They didn't go, oh, but they pushed in, and they said, who is this? And as we all stand, I think that's the invitation for us today. Two-part, the band's gonna start to play, but I wanna do this, it's just a simple action, it's just a simple physical thing, but as we do this posture of reception, right, I like to imagine that both one, out of this one hand, we're, we're giving up that truth we're holding on to, and then on the other hand, we're receiving that which God wants to give us. And so my invitation for us today, if you're sitting there, if you're standing there, not everybody has to do this, but if this applies to you, I'm just going to ask you to do this. If you've been feeling fear in and over your head, you feel like the boat's about to crash, that you're drowning, it seems like Jesus is asleep, God is distant. 
Can I invite you to just open that hand and release that fear of the storm that's threatening your life? You know what it is. I don't. You know what it is. With that one hand, as you release the fear and anxiety of if morning will ever come, with that other hand, would you open your hand to the reality that God is coming, that morning is on its way, that though the, joy, the sorrows may last for the night, joy is coming in the morning. Can you open your hands to that reality and receive it? That God wants to meet you in your pain. And then maybe you're sitting here today and like I said, you just kind of wandered into this place that was next to the farmer's market, heard some music. But you're here and you've heard something and you've experienced something. You're just like, I don't know. There's something in me that's stirring with the words that are being said, but I don't know what it is. I don't know anything about this Jesus, right? With that one hand, would you just open it and release that fear of pushing into the unknown, the anxiety about whether this is a cold or not? whether you're gonna get in too deep and people are gonna ask you weird questions or expect things of you, would you just open your hands and let that fear go? And with the other, would you receive that Jesus wants to push in, that he's not gonna shame you, that he wants to show you who he is, that you can put your hand in his side and you can ask the question, who is this man? That the wind and the waves obey. In a second, I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to come down, and we're going to act. I want to invite those who have those hands open as part of this invitation. There's rugs here on the floor, and this is for prayer, and this is for time. If you want to come, just sometimes it just helps to lay out. Sometimes it just helps to get on your knees. Sometimes it just helps to get in a different position and just kind of assume that posture of a child and say, like, and just put everything out there, God, I need you. You're welcome to come. There are going to be people stationed along the walls. If you need someone to pray for you, one, to help you let go of that fear and, and find that peace, or if you want to ask who Jesus is, you want to know a little more, will you go and find one of these people on the wall and let them pray with you, let them talk to you? And then for those who consider themselves in the family of God, we have the table, the body broken, the blood poured, and the invitation is to come and receive the reminder that if he was going to forsake us, if he wasn't going to be so faithful to us, why would he go through so much? Why would he partake in so much suffering to show us he loves us and then leave us alone? So come to the table and receive that reminder. And then as the band plays and leads us in worship, we're going to lift our voice. Scriptures say that the Lord inhabits the praise of his people. And so as we lift up our voices, we're going to follow and you're going to feel the movement of the Spirit coming And hopefully we'll come away with a little bit clearer picture of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, would you lift the fog right now? Would you take away the fear and the anxiety? Lord, would we know your faithfulness in new ways? Lord, would we come and respond to what we have heard? And may you meet us where we are. Amen. So come as you are. Respond how you need to. And then when the time's up, the band will dismiss us with our benediction.